Welcome to the second season of the Inclusive Food Systems podcast by Belong. This season explores the role played by indigenous communities in building food security and climate resilience. In India, indigenous or tribal people are amongst the most nutritionally deprived social groups. At the same time, indigenous knowledge systems and food cultivation practices are adapted to local environment conditions and are diverse and therefore more climate resilient. How do we then incorporate this traditional knowledge into mainstream agriculture and nutrition programs while foregrounding the health and well-being of indigenous peoples? I'm your host Amia and in this season we'll dive into pastoralism, fishing and farming to uncover the ways in which indigenous peoples hold the key to a sustainable and food secure future. Welcome to the second episode in season 2 of Inclusive Food Systems. Our guest today is Dr. Nitya Ghotke from Antra Pune and we will be discussing indigenous pastoralist groups of India from the Bakkarwals of Kashmir to the Dhangars of Maharashtra. These communities possess invaluable knowledge on maintaining species diversity and other sustainable livestock rearing practices but are sidelined in the discourse on the livestock sector. Dr. Nitya is a veterinarian and one of the founders of Antra and presently its director. Her work includes research, training and policy advocacy on different aspects of livestock development, especially on systems of healthcare as well as planning for gender sensitive and sustainable ways of farming and livestock rearing. A special focus for her now is pastoral and nomadic communities and the animals they rear. In today's episode Dr Nitya sheds light on sustainable livestock rearing practices women pastoralists and the uses of ethno veterinary practices as we attempt to reimagine India's livestock sector with indigenous pastoralists at the heart of the narrative Thank you for joining us Dr Nitya to talk about indigenous pastoralist communities and sustainability can you start by telling us about your journey with antra can you elaborate on some of the key focus areas of the organization which works on empowering marginalized pastoralist communities and developing socially just and climate resilient approaches within the livestock sector i'm really happy and honored to be in this podcast today i think it's a pleasure to be talking to some young people and also maybe not so young people about my journey i am a veterinarian by training and about 30 years ago when previous century in the world was a different place i started antra along with a colleague of mine a close friend and a colleague and what we did was we were young veterinarians just out of college and what we wanted to do was really change the world from where we were in at that point we wanted to make a difference the place we felt that we could work with the knowledge newly acquired knowledge as veterinary doctors that we had was to work in india's rural areas to go back into the villages and see how people lived there and how they kept animals raised animals and how we could help them there so that's actually how antra began about 30 years ago and we remained with this commitment that we want to work in the areas in marginal areas where people don't normally the formal veterinary sector is unable to reach and also with people who have been remote or not been in a position to access formal veterinary healthcare and so therefore nomadic pastoralists fall very 
properly into this. We've also worked communities like the Dalit communities, Adivasi communities, those who are not in the framework of mainstream development. And of course, climate resilient approaches, climate change is has really one has become conscious of this much later. In 92, when we started, it wasn't part of the development lexicon as it were. And now there is nothing without climate change. So we started a climate change cell sometime in 2008 when we felt that we needed to respond to what was happening globally concerning the livestock sector and climate change. I think we will talk a little more about this a little later. But for now, this is where we are. Antra is an organization started by women veterinarians. We primarily work with the marginalized communities and we like to work with the women of these communities because we see that they have been invisible and really unaccounted for. And we would like to show some light of the kind of work they do the challenges they face and their perspectives on how the livestock sector is. For our listeners, I want to just zoom out and take a more bird's eye view. In India's agricultural economy, the livestock sector encompasses so much more than just the rearing of animals for meat consumption. Can you give us a comprehensive picture of the livestock sector and some of its allied industries? So, First of all, yes, livestock sector and allied industries. I'm a little allergic to the word industry. <laughs> so I would rather call it production system or a farming system. But yes, you're right. The livestock sector today encompasses, I read something by, I think, Ajay Veer Jhakar the other day, who said the livestock sector comprises about presently in today's economy, about one third of the entire agricultural economy of the country. So it's a significant part. The livestock sector, if you talk to any Indian farmer, they will say livestock is a zordanda or is an allied sector to crop farming. And the two go together always. So when you look at them as going together, you don't see them independent poultry farms or independent pig farms or independent dairy farms. But you're looking at crop rearing and livestock rearing really going together. So it's also about animals as draft animals. Today, of course, they're not used much anymore. You have male cattle as draft animals, but in some places, yes, they're still there. You have them very importantly for manure. The Indian agricultural economy, and especially if you're looking now at a growing organic sector, they're going to become more and more dependent on the manure that comes from livestock. We also have it as important for wool, not so much in the southern part of India, but in the north, definitely we do have some animals there for wool and supplying a local market or supplying for coarse wool largely. We have it, of course, for me, milk. India's dairy industry is quite big because you've written meat consumption here. So it's basically you have it as, you have it for milk, you have it for manure, you have it as draft animal power, which is reducing. But another important part is I think livestock is also a part of our culture a part of the identity of Indian farmers, of India as itself. Maybe there are very close associations with not just as the cow as a religious symbol, but also as every state I have visited in India, they would look at the cattle from that breed, from that state and say, this exemplifies or this is a picture of what we believe to be good agriculture. So whether it is Kharparkar up in the deserts of Jaisalmer or the Ongol cattle, of fish, you'd find there's a close association. It's linked also closely to cultures like in the Andamans, the pig is related, is very Andaman pig is closely related to the tribal communities there. So there is a close association here. And, and then also for, I'm forgetting a very important thing is biodiversity, 
for maintaining biodiversity, which is one of the planetary boundaries. It's also for important for being grasslands, grasslands, maintaining landscapes. This is something which is not really being explored or discussed much in India, but I think livestock are a very important contributor to how landscapes evolve. Like you have the landscapes, the grazing landscapes, the Deccan, for example, and I think they're a function of livestock grazing as having happened. So these are some of the things beyond just mere meat consumption or where it's just an industry, which is the livestock, which is the way we would look at it. I want to go back to how you've mentioned how the livestock sector is interwoven with the socio-cultural fabric of the country. Do you think that there's the connection between, say, caste or tribe or religious identities and the distribution of resources in this sector? For instance, maybe how upper castes are able to rear bovine cattle, whereas lower castes can sometimes only afford smaller ruminants such as goats or sheep. The first thing that determines what animal where we could look at is geographies. So you have the yak, which is reared in the Himalayas, and obviously you cannot have the yak in the Andamans, for example. But you do have the pig and uh, different types of poultry in the Andamans, which you cannot, it's not so easy to rear pig up in the Himalayas. The camel is definitely something that is an animal for the desert. And these geographies have determined livestock rearing practices in those areas, whether it's forest, desert, mountains, or the sea and for agriculture, have determined which breeds, which animal type, which kind of animal have developed in those regions. And India has a rich and varied biodiversity because of these differences. The deserts, the mountains have played an important and in response to that, you also have different communities who've taken up the rearing of special animals. For example, many, several of the pastoral communities identify very closely with the animals they rear and believe that they actually they have been created to take care of these animals. So if it, whether it's the Vangujars of the North or the Raikas, many of them believe that, I think the Raikas have a story that God or Shiva and Parvati created a camel and trusted the Raikas with their care. A very similar story, for example, is there amongst the Kurubas, the Kurumas and the Dhangars of shepherds of the Deccan. They all believe they were specially created to take care of sheep. There are many stories in their folklore which I identify with this. And then you have similar stories amongst different communities about how they have been specifically created to take care of an animal. And there's a close relationship there between a farming community and a particular kind of animal. So whether it's the Thar Parker of the deserts or the Ongol, as again, I'm going back to the Thar Park and the Ongol, but with spe- the, maybe the Vetchur of Kerala, they're very definite, specific identities, delineations which have happened with communities. And the caste comes later. It comes as a different layer, which has imposed differences. Rearing of large animals. I wrote a book many years back called Livestock and Livelihoods. And that I've discussed some of this. And one of the things is, if you look at the elephant or the camel, the large animals, they were horses. They were actually animals reared by royalty. They were used in warfare. They were used as animals during the number of elephants they owned or the number of horses determined how big or powerful a particular royal family was. Therefore, these were animals mainly kept by royalty, but the care, of course, was done by other communities or castes. Then you had the farming communities who had their own animals. And then you have pastoral communities. I've mentioned those who have raised their own animals, for example. And then, of course, you have forest-based communities who have developed or bred their own animals in response to their needs. So typically, I would talk about poultry breeds because poultry is supposed to be domesticated first in India. The Asil breed, also known as Asli is supposed to have been, the real poultry bird is supposed to have been originated in India and in its in the forest. 
And therefore, you have different tribal communities in India having different and very distinct breeds of poultry. So there is this difference because of the resources needed to manage a horse or an elephant or a camel or even expensive breeds of cattle are a lot. They are reared by people who have means of wealth. And if you do not have access to those resources and you live a migratory lifestyle, it's more possible that you will read an animal that can migrate with you or you will really keep small animals or you may only keep poultry. You were mentioning how certain communities think that it's their purpose on earth to look after certain animals and that really challenges more anthropocentric view that these animals are present for our sustenance, which is pretty incredible. And I want to also focus on gender identity because that's a special focus area for the work at Antra as well. So if you could just elaborate on what is the role of women in livestock activities such as fodder collection? And why is it important for sustainability and also for household food security to empower these women and preserve their knowledge on livestock management? So before I actually delve into the answer, I'm going to tell you about something that we are doing now at Antra. Since the past year, we've instituted awards for women who rear animals. The reason for instituting these awards every year, we want to honor five women from different livestock rearing communities. Basically, to bring visibility to the work they do in livestock care and also recognize the special bond they have with the animals they rear. So starting from here, I will come to the fact that we instituted these awards. It's been 30 years since we started because in the 30 years, we realized that major, a lot of the work in livestock care actually centers around women in the farming family or the animal rearing family. So women within the long working day that they have doing things like cooking, cleaning, washing for their own household and taking care of the young ones, they're often charged with responsibilities such as care of young animals, lambs, for example, in the pastoral family, calves, chicken. They're also, they're responsible for the caregiving activities like they are for children within the household, whether it's preparing the food, offering them supplements, taking care of the young ones because they cannot go out to graze, taking care of sick animals because they don't go out to graze. A lot of these roles are actually filled by women, a caregiving role, nursing. And this is critical because this is where, if it's taking care of young ones, it ensures that the young ones are healthy enough to grow, mature and become viable livestock for the future, which supports the family. Taking care of sick animals means that they get well, And then they're, again, not a burden on the family, but rather become well and are able to contribute positively towards the family. So these address some of the sustainability issues which you have asked for. And women also do the very important job of, it varies from community to community, so I won't make a generalized statement here, whether women say, for example, milk animals. So in some communities they do, some communities they don't, but the milk itself is then collected, processed, and either used for household consumption or it's taken to the market to be sold. A lot of these elements in this are done by women. So to ensure that women are there to process the milk and offer it to their own children, or whether they keep it for the sick in their family, or they sell it in the market, earn money, all this is important and are roles that women play constantly. It varies vastly from community. And we find that now, interestingly, in the awards that we gave out last year, we're just writing a little report on it, we found that for in many of the families, the men are actually employed perhaps elsewhere or they are busy with another another livelihood opportunity. Maybe it's farming, maybe it's in one place we, the husband was busy fighting for the rights of pastoralists 
So the women handle the entire flock or herd by themselves. They are, some of them are living in forests, some of them are living in uh, alone under the skies in a little lean-to, which is their, what their home is in the place of migration. And they handle everything from grazing the animals and taking complete care of them too, except perhaps the marketing, they handle everything of the day-to-day activities. So it's a huge, I would call it, in fact, a portfolio of work that the women handle in taking care of their animals. And the knowledge they have is definitely something which they have learned not from a formal school or technical institute, but rather by watching, observing and seeing their mothers and the others in their family. Some have also learned it from their mothers-in-law. And this kind of knowledge often escapes the eye of scientists or development workers or, or even policymakers. So this is the kind of thing that we would bring to the forefront. And we also wanted to look at the more non-technical issue. What are the communication skills that women have? What is the bond they have? What's the relationship they have with the animals they rear? How do they feel about them? So these are some of the things that we're also exploring. And this is where we'd like to take our work ahead. And we hope to continue with the awards for several more years. Livestock rearing has become a cause of concern with environmentalists arguing that forests are being cleared to grow animal feed. Fresh water is used up in livestock production and the industry is emitting greenhouse gas emissions. So is this a concern for only the large-scale commercialized animal processing industries of the West and not so applicable to India's more localized supply chains? Or is there also a growing need for sustainability discourse even in India and other developing countries? I will start actually by answering the third question first. There is definitely a growing need for sustainability discourse in India and other developing countries. We cannot grow out of this because it is a cause for concern. So where should our livestock sector go is something that we need to worry about and think about. So if you look at it, of course, naturally, the food security of a country is important. Every country is concerned about it. So food security would also include livestock food. And therefore, you want to be self-sufficient in this. So India, fortunately, is, I think we are amongst the highest producers of milk, meat and eggs in the world. So I don't think we have a concern there. But the concern in India continues that if we were to continue in this path, for the poultry, for example, our poultry self-sufficiency comes a lot, in fact, from having industrial poultry houses because they're supposed to be more, they're supposed to be more efficient. For some time now, the livestock debate has been around this word efficiency. Indian animals were considered inefficient, so there was this big move to bring in more, I would put the inverted commas, efficient systems. So efficient system meant Western breeds, industrial types of farming, and better marketing chains, etc. But this exactly is what has become now the cause of concern of environmentalists because these industrial units, of course, need water, fresh water and fodder. They use up spaces. In the West, it's become so bad that corn is grown in South America and then transported to Europe to feed their animals. In fact, today, even a country like Vietnam, which has gone on the industrialized route and China, Vietnam has become a big importer of livestock feed because they have a really rapidly booming pig and poultry industry, which has gone the industrial way. Now, this is a cause of concern. We don't want to go the way of China and Vietnam because they have intensified livestock production, which means industries means you intensify kind of production system in one area and make huge demands on the environment and natural resources. Now, this would be disastrous for India for several reasons. 
it's disastrous for the environment. Socially, it would be also very disastrous because people from being owners of their own livestock farming units would then become employees in this industry. And I think that's not a very desirable thing at all to be. And thirdly, these industrial units are not a very efficient place that we imagine. A number of outbreaks of diseases, swine flu, avian flu, and perhaps even some original beginnings of COVID have been known to set off from livestock industrial units, although the industry would fight with me about this. Industrial units require a lot of lot of work to keep them safe. The other thing is they make the demand on their resources to keep prices low for consumers is, I don't think, an argument that is good enough because it comes as a huge cost to the environment and to society. So I think India needs to definitely be concerned that they follow a path which is far more sustainable, more in tune with our culture, our geographies, our environment and the needs of our consumers. When we talk of sustainability, this is where pastoralism could potentially come in and become really relevant. Can you tell us about the pastoralist communities of India? And how livestock rearing is actually fundamental to not just their livelihoods, but also their sociocultural ways of being. And the second part of my question is, how is pastoralism deeply rooted in resilience such that their livelihoods are intrinsically adaptive and sustainable? So a little bit about the pastoral communities in India. We have several pastoral communities in India. Many of us may know them, but many of us may not have noticed that they're actually many of they are there in our backyards or walking silently on the roads behind our house, migrating from one place to the other. So most of these pastoral communities, what is pastoralism? Very briefly, it's where a production system where by raising livestock, you're using it with low ex low inputs, low external inputs, which is why it's different from say ranching, because people could also say Ranching is people earn a livelihood from that. In pastoralism, it's low external inputs. So that's why you have people migrating from one place to the other. They take their animals on migration and the inputs are basically quite low. A lot of the work actually is in terms of the labor that the pastoralist puts into herding and tending their animals. Now, these many of these communities traditionally very old and they've been migrating for many years. So we know the well-known ones, of course, are the Gujars, the Bakarwas of the north the Dhangars, Kurbas and Kurmas of the Deccan. And we have also Todas in South India, for example. There are several pastoral communities across the country. We have the Revadis also and Raikas in Western India. This has been their way of life for as long as they can remember. They believe that this is what they know, this is what they were born to do. And it's deeply in their religion, in their culture, the way they look at their worldview also centered around these animals. So you'll find, for example, that in the communities that rear the Deccani sheep in the Deccan plateau, the wool from the Deccani sheep becomes very important in several important milestones. So a bride would wear a little bracelet made woven out of wool. The mat on which they sit is made from the wool of the Deccani sheep. And you'd find that these things actually, in a very subtle way, become very important cultural symbols which enter into their lives, social symbols. So for most of these communities who've been on the move, livestock rearing has been the principal occupation. They have not had access to health and education. So it's not so easy for them to shift and go into other occupations, though there are records of several pastoral communities now settling down. The Jats, for example, are the old pastoral communities who took to agriculture at some point several centuries ago. The Gujars are another community who've done something like that. And we find similar things in the Deccan, for example, with the Dhangars, some of them settling down and taking up agriculture. But you also have the reverse happening. 
you have communities who are not traditionally born into pastoralism taking up pastoralism because it makes sense. It's an occupational livelihood which makes sense. And this is where I would like to answer the question of resilience. We know pastoralists who worked in the mills in Bombay several years and have quit jobs in Bombay and come back to their villages and taken up pastoralism because they believe they've been bus drivers, they've been teachers. And if they felt that they weren't really going anywhere away much there, they've come back because they know that with pastoralism, you, if you're comfortable with it, you buy a few animals and you start herding them and you're able to make a livelihood out of it. This was seen a lot, in fact, after the first lockdown of COVID when several people lost their jobs in the cities and in factories. And they came back and they felt that taking up livestock and livestock rearing was at least something they could do in that environment and climate when it was pretty hopeless two years back. Now, speaking more about resilience and pastoral livelihoods, pastoralism is often practiced in areas where the climates are variable and extreme. So it could be cold deserts, hot deserts. It is drought-prone areas. It can be areas which are prone to weather, weather extremes. And the animals, therefore, are also used to differences in weather. But the most important thing is it's not rooted to that place. If there's a drought, if there's a famine, if there is something that you know is not conducive to raising animals, you can up and move. So, for example, in 1973, 72, 73 were the big droughts across the country. Shepherds from Gujarat migrated to the forests of Maharashtra and haven't returned since. Many of them are still continue to live in Maharashtra. And they practice short-term migration there, but they haven't gone back to Gujarat. So it is a system that is able to absorb shocks, take shock and think differently. So they adapt, they, they change, they learn, and they're able to move to different environments and make a living out of it. There are also shepherds who move in and out of pastoralism. We know people who've stepped out of pastoralism because they thought they'd like to try safe crop farming, for example. Fine, it doesn't go well and then say, okay, fine, we come back to pastoralism. And the biggest resilient thing I've said is I've not really heard of a pastoralist committing suicide. You've heard of farmer suicides, you've heard of agrarian crisis. I've seldom heard of a pastoralist really committing suicide or being so desperate because within their social cultural ethos, there's also one of sharing. Should a pastoralist, for example, lose a number of animals to, say, a, a disease, really bad epidemic of livestock disease, what happens is he'd have friends, relatives and neighbors who would share one one animal with them and they build in this kind of social security network and they're able to come back and start again. So I think given your own background as a veterinarian, I want to ask what are ethno-veterinary practices and are they relevant to the discourse of sustainable livestock rearing? How can we facilitate knowledge exchange across pastoralist communities located in remote regions? And finally, what are the challenges in gaining wider recognition and validation for these treatment methods in the broader scientific community? So ethno-veterinary practices, ethno is actually sometimes thought of as not such a nice term, but then anyway, it's widely used. Now it sums up the practices and knowledge systems which exist in livestock rearing communities. And I have a technical definition somewhere, but I'm just going to say it's basically the knowledge systems and practices that are there in several livestock traditional livestock rearing communities. And we started research on this 30 years back when we found in a number of remote areas of India, veterinary formal veterinary care was just not available and people didn't have recourse to formal training. 
So we went with the approach that, hey, they lack something. Formal medical care is not reaching them. So we need to go as these messiahs. Somebody, a lot of development professionals do have a certain, and all. I'm also guilty of having had that at some point of going there and trying to change everything, make a difference and take knowledge and learning. And I was surprised to learn that actually communities had a lot of knowledge of their own. A lot of very equal knowledge which they had about medicinal plants, about breeds of animals, of which fodders were good, how to take care of them, marketing practices. And these just were ignored completely by the formal veterinary community or formal science. So we began a process in those days of trying to raise some of these issues. And through a number of the publications or the work or the seminars that Antra did post over these last so many years, we've tried to bring the knowledge of these communities to the forefront. Having said this, knowledge is never static. This is not knowledge which was frozen in time or in one place. It's constantly developing, constantly changing, and it's constantly having to upgrade itself. I mean, farmers are constantly also trying to get new knowledge system they learn from here. So it's not something that is written in stone or it's a it's only one thing, but this is a much more organic, dynamic knowledge system which keeps changing. Facilitating knowledge systems across communities in remote areas is, for us, we try many times to facilitate these knowledge exchanges by having a workshop, by having training communities, by bringing tra- different tra- groups together. They were very enjoyable events because I think they brought a lot of knowledge and sharing. And so it was nice when I, we've had sessions with healers coming together and they're really enjoying learning from each other because it was something new. This Because unfortunately, knowledge in traditional communities in India often was in silos. It, knowledge has been divisive in the past. It has not been shared. It has been in silos. It has been in within caste, within communities and within gender. There wasn't much sharing. So For us, we've tried through some of the programs we've hosted to break some of the traditional barriers and enable and encourage people to be able to share. For example, we found that very few women were healers because healers only train men. They never thought that women could become healers. But we challenged this. We spoke to them and we spoke to some of the healers and they said, oh, why not? If we don't have sons, perhaps we could teach our daughters because the knowledge must continue. But it's not... If you need resources, you need commitment, you need people who are engaged in this and people who are committed to this to be able to facilitate this. So this is one way of knowledge sharing that can happen. And we did it in the early days. Now, of course, I think knowledge sharing has changed completely with, say, technology that you have now of Internet or and WhatsApp and in social media and things like that. Interestingly, you find young people, even from farming communities now on Facebook or social media, and they do exchange knowledge and things. We try and facilitate things on, say, uh, we have a WhatsApp network group where we find something interesting. We share information on that. Shepherds themselves have WhatsApp groups. So the methods of knowledge sharing are definitely changing. Ourselves recognized in the past, we found that literacy, non-literacy was a huge barrier to knowledge exchange. Many communities we worked with are just not literate. So we did try and embark on a program for education and literacy for pastoral communities. But faster than that was technology and say the technology of app and the video exchanges, which makes it so easy, for example, for shepherds to take a video of a small video clip of something and share it with communities. And you're able to exchange immediately what's happening. You're able to take a voice message clip. And communities are quick in picking up some of these things. So these are the modern ways of knowledge sharing which are happening. Now, coming to your final question, the challenge in gaining wider recognition and validation. I must say the situation is much changed 
from what it was 30 years ago. And for either the right reasons or the wrong reasons, today Ayurveda, traditional medicine, herbal medicines, in India at least, are quite well known, are happy to use them. There's a revival of some of these techniques and medicines. And veterinary colleges themselves are starting departments for ethno-veterinary medicine. They are part of an ethno-veterinary group where we're having a lot of people, for example, scientists, departments have. There are courses on veterinary Ayurveda being started. Students are going to be able to learn courses on ethno-veterinary medicine in their undergraduate and graduate courses in the formal veterinary program. You also have research and being done on these kinds of practices. So the it has changed. It has definitely changed since 30 years ago. And many more people are talking about using it now. And there's another point that I would say is these medicines do definitely have a relevance today. At least as we've seen it over the years, there has been a lot of misuse of modern medicine. Some of you may have posted the environmental might know of diclofenac, which is used as a pain medication and was supposed to be the cause for the vultures getting extinct. So there has been a ban on clofenac, but also let's look at antimicrobials and antibiotics, which have been misused excessively by both humans and veterinarians in the last 30, 40 years and are now leading to a condition called antimicrobial resistance. Several forms of microbials are now resistant to the known antimicrobials. So what are we going to do then if we do not have the medicines to take care of problems of today? And I think this is where ethno-veterinary practices make a lot of sense. For example, we have household medicines like turmeric, cinnamon, cumin seeds, which are used every day in our cooking, which actually are proven to have antibacterial use. Some of them even slightly antiviral use. These are proven there. Then you also have the neem. We can't speak. We know that the neem is very effective in, in its use as an insect repellent to keep insects at bay as an anti-parasitical. So I think there is a lot of value in some of the practices that we documented and recorded when our research was going on several years ago. And definitely, for sure, they have value for the future if we want a more sustainable future with livestock rearing. Because the modern answers to some of these, such as antimicrobials and antibacterials, have reached their limit. I think they have been overused, misused, and we definitely need to have other systems coming into place now. Now, a question that most of our listeners will be wondering, I'm sure, what can we do as consumers to support smallholder or pastoralist livestock farmers and not the larger corporatized meat industries, which are neither sustainable for the environment, nor do they guarantee fair prices to marginalized farmers? So the debate here actually centers around the price of food. And making food cheap and available for everybody versus having special foods. And I think this is where we really get caught in coming up with a very fair solution. I'll explain this now. So if you want, like you have a midday meal program or India's dairy program where you want everyone to have access to a glass of milk or an egg and you want everyone to be able to afford it, then you want to price your milk at say not more than 50 rupees a liter or 40 rupees a liter. And you want your egg to cost not more than say, 5 rupees an egg, right? You need to make it affordable for everybody. If you want to make it affordable for everybody, then unfortunately, maybe our smallholder farming systems will not be able to cater to everybody in the country here, to the entire population of the country. There would be some kind of shortfall problem. It's just not 
feasible because this is what was happening, say, in the 50s and 60s and there were shortages, you didn't have access to eggs or something. If you were, especially I would say the category of the urban poor who wouldn't have access to resources. So being mindful of categories such as the urban poor and the rural poor, it has been important to keep the prices of some of these products low. And this has actually, unfortunately, then helped the corporate meats industries. So therefore, I'm just thinking aloud, I think what needs to be done here is perhaps some of us who are in a position to make a choice and to afford or support farming systems which are organic or sustainable or something that we definitely believe in, we have to be prepared to pay the slightly higher price it is because economies of scale, of course, dictate bringing prices down. So if we want something which is a product which has greater value because we believe that greater value is organic or value to the farmer, him getting a good price or him or her getting a good price, then we need to be prepared to pay for that price of getting better food. I don't know how much the government can subsidize because it's already a lot of stuff the government has to do in terms of global world trade because the livestock sector is very intrinsically also related to global food systems. And there are always countries where production is far cheaper than in India trying to dump their extra produce onto the Indian market, which would suppress our demand here. So it would need very strategic thinking by our policymakers and our economists to have livestock produce coming in for the category which might need them, which is, the, as I said, the urban poor, the rural poor, especially the young, the children who are growing and maybe pregnant and lactating mothers. Now, when we come to consumers who are at the top end, who can afford it, perhaps more consumer-related programs where we explain to them what healthy, good food means, what it means to we do. Can we support meat, which is, say, free-range? Can we support dairy products which are grown in a free range where they don't have antibiotics or where they've been where they've been grown in a sustainable way and also which values the farmer for having done this and supports the farming household. I think it would have to be that we are prepared to pay that little extra price to support these farmers. And we would probably need to some degree of consumer education to help them understand these the economics of this, as it were. We've just discussed what we can do as consumers for pastoralist communities. Now, I want to spend some time discussing the role of the state. In India, policy measures for the protection of pastoralist communities have been dismissed by preventing access to commons, targeting government veterinary services towards affluent landed livestock farmers, and neglecting indigenous knowledge. How is the state failing to protect these vulnerable groups and therefore also failing to protect the environment? I think the case of the pastoralists is one of invisibility, unfortunately. They only become visible when they are negotiating a political space or reservations. For example, the Gujars become available when they said that they wanted to step out of being OBC and wanted to become scheduled tribes. The Dhangars become visible when they say they want to be enumerated with the scheduled tribes. But this political engagement of theirs is only good for those who've already stepped out of pastoralism. And it doesn't give them any agency when they're actually within pastoralism. And this is where we need to look at the debate slightly differently. In our work with shepherds, what we found is if this invisibility is what unfortunately has been heavy on them, the state doesn't often include them in their census records. Because they've just, pastoralism has been traditionally seen as being vagrant, backward, 
vagabond. Why does the guy move? Why can't he set and rise? Why do they have to move? So it's seen as something like that. They don't understand that. Also now, many people in the IT sector are migrant and move from city to city. So it needs to the whole thing about migration and moving. The dialogue and discourse around that has to change. The veterinary system, unfortunately, is catered to a sedentary system. It is catered to a village, except perhaps maybe in Kashmir they have mobile veterinary services, but otherwise it is a veterinary health center, and everything is rooted. All our services are rooted to sedentary system. Whether it's public distribution system, whether it's a healthcare system, whether it's an education system, and mobility is something which they find very difficult to grasp and deal with because policies and programs have been designed for sedentary system. So I think it would require a lot of rethinking. By once, of course, the pastoralists are enumerated because they have to appear in the census records. So we know we have this many pastoralists. I think the next task would then be to looking at systems which can be mobile, which can cater to people who are on the move constantly. It can cater to people who don't normally live in what they call a settled home. So many of these concepts which you have in our brain would have to be unboxed, unpackaged and looked at differently. And we also need to look at some of the classic. I remember now in 97, where the goat was considered an enemy of the environment. There was this whole discourse, which is actually a global discourse, where they decided the goat was the enemy of the environment. So everywhere they were banning goats all over. In fact, so much so that in a state like Andhra Pradesh, somewhere around 1997, veterinarians who were employed by the government were told not to treat small ruminants. They were told you can't treat goats. This was, of course, challenged. And since then, the discourse has changed. And Rajiv Gandhi, in fact, had instituted a committee under a well-known bias officer called Hanumantra. And he found that actually the goats came into a degraded environment rather than goats contributing to degrading an environment. So we found that the goats were not, in fact, the enemy or the bad guys in this debate. And the discourse changed. So a lot of this, I think, also is to bring visibility to pastoralism and pastoralism. In our mind's eye, many of us only look at pastoralists as being colorful clothes, colorful turbans, fabulous embroidery work. But do we actually see them as maybe people contributing the milk that goes into making the mithai in the mithai kaduka in a sweet shop? Or do we look at them as being people who are actually enabling a certain environment to be attractive or valuable for grazing? We need to start bringing in a visibility to them in a way where they look at being contributing to our systems. And I think that, I think, will bring about a change in how policy looks at them as well. I don't think the pastoralists would want them to come as feeling marginalized or pity or something, and we want to do it for you. But as they're also citizens of the country, and it's, and they deserve to be visible and recognized and have access to their to whatever rights are being given to other citizens of the country, I would look at it that way. Given the bans on beef slaughter as well as the removal of eggs from the midday meal, have traditional indigenous livestock rearing communities been impacted by the current political ecosystem, which sort of encourages more vegetarian diet? Yes, to some extent, yes. And this is actually an interesting and funny question. If you were to be today a student in Germany or Netherlands or one of the European countries, it would be cool to be vegan. It would be cool in that sense to be not eating meat because most of the meat there is produced in through industrial systems and you would want to say I'm a progressive person because I'm vegan and I'm saying no to the kind of meat that is being eaten and that is being produced in our society. Unfortunately in India the debate isn't hinged there. So in India we're looking at 
is having a system which is not is saying no and preventing people who don't have we talked about the urban poor we talked about the rural poor so actually in some ways beef was contributing to people who could not afford higher forms of meat so it was communities i'm not talking about several communities who religious communities who eat meat i'm not saying the christians muslims and parsis comfortably eat beef in the country but this is more to do with you have communities like the dalits and many other communities who ate beef because that was what they could afford and definitely what happens to the old animals in old male animals in the production system they are slaughtered which is what happens in other countries but then religion plays this extremely difficult role and doesn't make it easy at all so let me tell you when we were in arunachal earlier this there is a ban on slaughter even in two districts in some districts of arunachal although most people in arunachal eat meat so you can't have slaughter within those districts but it's okay to have meat imported in from another district so i think any of these bans many of these things have been poorly thought out actions by policy makers to gain political mileage and vote and actually have impacted severely on a production system or what happens to two different production systems therefore the reason i brought out this thing about it would be cool in germany to be vegan so when the west looks at india being vegetarian they actually look at india as being very progressive and not seeing that some of these had been at the cost and the price paid for by certain communities who can't afford any other form of meat and this leads to the previous question where i said when you have the urban poor or the cost of food if you put bans if you have policies which are not right you will end up taxing the poor in our country from having decent diets rather than taxing the wealthy who are already subsidized in other ways so these are some of the very difficult political decisions that have been made and we need a lot more thinking a lot more discourse and a lot more dialogue around this Thank you for that Dr Nityan as final thoughts how do you envision the future of the livestock sector in India and what would be one or two policy recommendations that could help indigenous communities and their more sustainable practices gain widespread recognition so some years back we did an exercise for foresighting okay it was supposed to be looking at several scenarios for the future so i'll try and predict a few scenarios for you and then tell you which one i would prefer so there can be a doomsday scenario which means all traditional practices go and we're completely dependent on commercially produced meat or it could even be lab grown meat for that matter if there is talk about that also happening so that would be doomsday or we could have all our meat imported in from another country i don't think that's a future i particularly would like or want and i hope policy will not go in that direction i can talk about a completely utopian scenario where all industrial units are banned india has thriving livestock economy where you have all farmers happily growing fodder crops and crops for their animals and who grazing on plenty and produce vast quantities of healthy milk and meat and whatever and they and they're able to share it with the communities I don't think that scenario also will happen. I would be a fool to imagine that everything will be hunky dory and everything a perfect utopian scenario which is utopian for me which is organic and environment socially just and environmentally. I don't think there can be a complete thing and all the indigenous communities would sustain themselves because many of them are also tired of where they are and they would like to change they would like to be something different. After all we have a president from a tribal community now who's happy to be a president and it's nice that she's not farming or she's not doing something in mayurbhanj but is actually 
sitting in the chair of the president in India. It's different. So therefore, I'll come to the two middle, maybe an in-between scenario where we'll have some amount of industrialized or factory farming as they call it, but limited because we would need very strict laws on how much they can be, what degree they can expand to. And these perhaps would produce the some degree of the milk, meat and food, which would be required for catering to consumers where we see the price, we cannot have a great increase in price, where we need, we know that communities need to be having access to good quality, high quality, reasonable quality, livestock-based food. And I would say simultaneously along with this, we could have a sector, thriving sector, where not just indigenous communities and traditional communities, but a more evolved community of farmers and livestock rearers, maybe even new entrants into this, who would rear animals in modern ways, I'm using the word modern, which take in the best elements of traditional livestock rearing practices, maybe bits of knowledge from pastoralists and indigenous communities, and also use knowledge of the present of, on sustainability, on what it means to not, say, use plastic or not to use dangerous insecticides and pesticides, how to use ethno veterinary practices in an efficient way and produce high quality, good livestock producing food, which perhaps then could make its way into the homes of people who can afford to have that kind of, because this is going to cost some money. So this we perhaps would have many more of these. So instead of paying 50 rupees a liter for milk, maybe some of us would be comfortably able to afford 75 rupees or 100 rupees for a liter of milk. I know this does happen, but they know that it would be high quality and you can support these kinds of things. And thereby we support certain kinds of farming practices. So I imagine actually that will be a mix of, it should be a mix of both. It will be a mix of both. I only hope that the mix is in the right proportions, in the right balance so that the next generation and the generation after that will have an opportunity to see livestock communities as they were in livestock communities as vibrant, sustainable sectors rather than sectors which are dying or defeated. I'd like to end on that note of hope.